Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail, New Zealand, the place to be in 2021. We're staging a Cricket World Cup, a Rugby World Cup, and we'll also play host to an international conference looking at one of the most interesting and bewildering issues of our time. We've created a virtual world, so we've got parallel universes, and we have secured our physical world. In the virtual world, we haven't done that. Late next year, tech luminaries from around the world will descend on Auckland to discuss issues around cybercrime, what it actually is, how breaches are discovered, the widening gap in knowledge between those who know and those who don't, and whether our biggest city could become the Switzerland or the Seattle of the South Pacific when it comes to online security. It's called the International Conference on Privacy, Security and Trust. Let's maybe start by talking a bit about what cybercrime actually is. You certainly will have heard of it because it happens all the time. The transport agency is in talks with Google about a breach of data storage after a bungle by its rogue and now defunct high-tech unit. Let's get more now on our story of the data breach at the Ministry of Culture and Heritage which saw more than 300 people's personal information made easily available on a website the ministry set up. This does not necessarily indicate a lack of security across all government platforms. In this instance, a third-party contractor was engaged to provide the services and it did not have adequate security. The Minister for the GCSB warns New Zealand may have been the target of cyber attacks at the height of COVID-19 and working from home left us more vulnerable. Data hacks, stolen passwords, emails from Nigerian princes who just need a couple of hundred bucks to access their inheritances. These are all part of the cybercrime puzzle. In fact, just as I was working on this episode, I received an email from my old university telling me about a data security breach involving information on alumni and donors from around the world. But hacking occupies strange and unseen territory. We have a physical world. We live in a physical world, a real world. We've created a virtual world. That's Professor Hossein Sarafzadeh. He is a cybersecurity professor at New York's St. Bonaventure University after spending years as the head of computing at Unitech. A lot of our younger people are spending most of their time in that virtual world. So we've got parallel universes. We've got two parallel worlds, and we have secured our physical world. We have uh, got locks. We've got security alarms. And and we keep our physical space secure. Or we try to. There's no 100% security. Where in the virtual world, we haven't done that. So cybersecurity is about creating digital locks, keeping your belongings, which are digital belongings, secure so that others can't tamper with them. Now, the sheer existence of cybersecurity implies you have something worth keeping secure in the digital space. And this, of course, is data. The problem is we can't actually see data. We can't touch data. We don't conceptualise it in the same way we do with, say, a laptop or a gold ring. But losing control of your data can be catastrophic. For example, your bank account details. You wouldn't uh, give it to just anyone. You wouldn't give it probably to anyone. So why would you not keep your bank account details secure online? If you're using your mobile to do your internet banking, you're vulnerable. 
you know, someone like me or, or someone who knows and has ill intentions could hack into your mobile. So security is about keeping your digital assets more secure so that others can't access it. So it's like having a safe and putting your documents, precious documents and your gold into that safe and locking it. When I hear hacking, I think, you know, pimply teenagers in hoodies sitting in darkened rooms at four o'clock in the morning, uh, subverting the mainframe, compromising systems integrity uh, with green numbers flashing up on the screen and dramatic music in the background. Basically, I think movies. But that isn't how it really works, needless to say. There are lots of different types of hacking. Some of them are very simple and actually based less on tech skills and more on people skills. David Kennedy is one of them. He's what's known as a social engineer or a people hacker. His craft is to dupe you into doing things and sharing information you probably shouldn't. Hello, you there? Hello? Hi, this is Ken. How may I help you? I was wondering if uh, you can uh, take a look at a website I'm trying to get to. It's for a uh, big customer thing I'm working on for Monday, and uh, I can't seem to get to the website from my computer. Sure. Uh, what's the website? I'll see if I can get to it. Thanks, man. I really appreciate the help. I mean, it could be a stupid thing. I'm, I'm, I'm really stuck with computers, but... Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's www.survey, that's uh, S-U-R-V-E-Y dash pro dot com. Yeah, I got a prompt to open. I just clicked open and I'm at the site now. Here's what the IT guy doesn't realize. By clicking that link, he's just given David full access to his computer. Whoa, okay, that's weird. I just hit it and it works. It seems like it's working fine now. Awesome. I don't know what you did, man, but I really appreciate the help. Hey, no problem. That was easy. That was it? We're on his computer right now. You were able to take take over this this guy's computer within, I would say, like under two minutes. Under two minutes, yeah. Under two minutes, took over his entire computer. And, and think of it as not just his computer, but it's pretty much a downfall of the entire company. The first phase is to gather information about you. And we can do that through online means. Uh, you know, if you're in social media, there's a lot of information out there about you, your digital footprint is out there, and there's quite a bit about you. Social engineering is another means of getting information. I'll give you a scenario. I can call you and tell you that I'm calling from a bank. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying someone is trying to use your uh, credit card in, say, the United States. I mean, your reaction would be, well, I don't want that to happen. Mm -hmm. Thank you for calling me. And then I can uh, start asking you questions. I could send you a link to click on. I could reset your password for a certain website that I'm interested in and tell you that I'm sending you a code. Okay, now tell me what the code is so that I can make sure it is you that I'm talking to. You give me that code and that's it. I've got your access to your account and that's a hack. Mm. And there's various types of uh, hacks. There's DDoS attacks, for example, distributed denial of service. That could bring down, I mean, they brought down uh, Sony's uh, systems. This is the group responsible for hacking two of the biggest computing companies in the world and stopping more than 150 million people from playing their games consoles this Christmas. The group calling themselves Lizard Squad attacked Sony and Microsoft, closing down online services. Speaking to us from Finland, this man who calls himself Ryan says he is one of the hackers. He claims the hack only took a few members and the youngest was just 13 years old. You know, if Sony's systems are down for, say, a day, 
or or a few hours, it, you're talking about millions of dollars in lost revenue. Can you just can you explain how a DDoS attack works? Let's say you've got a net in front of your house so that nothing goes through. But if I throw rocks and 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 try different directions, some of them will go through. So what they do is to use hundreds of thousands of computers, which they have compromised. So a hacker might compromise your machine. You will not know. It takes you 207 days to find out if if you ever find out that you've been hacked. Mm-hmm. They compromise all these machines, and then they use them all of a sudden to send requests to one website. And, and they flood that system, that website, with requests for information. And when the website can't handle it, it just crashes, and that's a DDoS attack. So it's like an army of zombie computers. Yes, zombie computers. Yeah, it could be, you know, and those zombie computers don't have to necessarily be your laptop or your uh, desktop computer. They could be the security cameras that have been compromised, and they have computing power on them. You put it all together, like you say, you've got an army of zombies. Yes, your computer or your cell phone could unwittingly be a member of a zombie army. There is only one war that matters. The Great War. And it is here. It's not quite Game of Thrones, but it is a big threat, and one to which New Zealand is extremely vulnerable. The Minister for the GCSB warns New Zealand may have been the target of cyber attacks at the height of COVID-19 and working from home left us more vulnerable. It follows a five-fold increase in cyber attacks reported by the World Health Organization in April and a massive attack on the Australian government in June. New Zealand, I mean, I've, I've been living in New Zealand for about 20 years now. We're known to be a trusting nation. And that's great. That's why I love New Zealand, because we are a trusting nation and you can trust people. That's why we have such a great place to live. However, hackers also love that because you believe them easily, you get hacked easier. I created New Zealand's first cybersecurity research center at Unitech Institute of Technology in 2011. One of the first studies we did was to monitor attempted attacks on our IP addresses. Mm. And we were getting four times the number of attacks on New Zealand compared to what we were getting on Japan. Four times the number. Four times the number of attempted attacks. So, you know, they scan the whole IP space. Those are considered attempted attacks in this case. We are a soft target. But, as we mentioned, we do have defences, and the way these are constructed is actually really interesting. Hossein has a good story illustrating this. He was sitting in his office one day. And my PA came in and said, there's this young man, 16 years old, close to 16, a high school kid. He wants to see you. And I said, well, I'm meeting. And she was saying, oh, he's, he's in a rush. He wants to see you. He's in trouble with the Interpol. And the young man came in and he said, well, I'm, I'm in trouble with the police. I've been talking to a lawyer. They're telling me that I'll be behind bars for two years because I hacked University X in Australia. Mm-hmm. And he had done a brilliant job of, I mean, not, not ethical, 
But, you know, technically, he had done the perfect hack. And he had access to all of their data, bank accounts, passwords, you name it, he had access to it. So I ended up giving him a scholarship, asking him to come and work for us. There's a great uh, New Zealand cybersecurity expert called Andy Prow. I called him and he said, I want this guy. Mm. That person is now a, a senior security analyst in this mm. country. This is called grey hat hacking, derived from the concepts of black hat and white hat hackers. White hat hackers are paid by companies to try to break into their own computer systems, thus showcasing their vulnerabilities. You can think of them as the good guys trying to help strengthen cybersecurity. Black hat hackers break into systems to steal information for their own personal gain. Grey hat hackers straddle this line a wee bit. They might break some laws or violate ethics, but their motivations aren't usually malicious. Sometimes they're ambiguous. I asked this young man uh, why he hacked into the university. So, well, uh, their systems were not patched. You know, they're such a great university, number one university in Australia. I wrote them an email and told them that they needed to patch their systems. They didn't do that. So to make sure... I keep them secure, I hack them so that they know. <laughs> and this is pretty much how it works. You set up a security system, you try to break into it, and if you can, you plug the leaks. The global cybersecurity market, by some estimates, is worth up to $100 billion. And, of course, some countries have a bigger slice of that than others. Israel, for example, where Hossein Sarafzadeh comes from, has some 450 cybersecurity companies, which between them attracted billions of dollars of investment last year. And we do have our own cybersecurity companies here, but Hossein reckons New Zealand could be a sleeping giant in the world of cybersecurity. Being a trusted nation, we're a trusting nation, but we are also a trusted nation. And that creates a lot of opportunities for us because people don't trust a lot of other countries. But New Zealand... I think a lot of people would be more comfortable having their data housed in New Zealand. So building data centers in New Zealand held by New Zealand companies which are trusted uh, would be the way to go to tap into uh, cybersecurity opportunities. So we have an asset of trust that we're not selling, unfortunately. That's interesting. Okay, and so what are, you, are you sort of suggesting that New Zealand, the opportunity for New Zealand is kind of like being the Swiss bank accounts of the technological world? Excellent analogy. I, I do believe that that is the case, and that is why we're bringing this conference here. AT and the Auckland Convention Bureaus have supported me in the past few years to bring cybersecurity conferences to New Zealand. What they believe is that New Zealand and Auckland particularly, or even Wellington, could become the Silicon Valley or, or a sister Silicon Valley here. So bringing that conference here, bringing all those top-level cybersecurity experts into New Zealand, AT, the Auckland Convention Bureau, and I believe that we are taking baby steps towards proposing New Zealand and Auckland as a place where experts could come. The weather is great. 
We've got all these beautiful beaches, and we've got highly intelligent people on the ground. So what do companies look for, first of all, is where do you have the experts? If I bring my company down to New Zealand, will I be able to find top-notch people and hire them? And I think our government should uh, support AT in this aim, and we should all get behind this and make New Zealand an a technology island. Mm. I have heard it said that New Zealand has a little bit of an issue when it comes to tech and talent and that the tech educational sector here is not as sophisticated as it could be and that consequentially we are very reliant on high-skilled migrant workers and that that's maybe not a long-term fix and that it can be exposed in a situation like COVID when, when that kind of happens. I think New Zealand has a lot to do, but I disagree that we don't have the talent. I've been teaching in New Zealand for years, uh, close to 19 years. I taught at Massey University, I taught at Unitech, and I was the head of a school at Unitech. And I think government should pay more attention uh, to uh, higher education. And, and politics are a part of that. Uh, we've got some great people in our politics. Uh, help them. Help them help this country. Help us you know, build a better place for us. We've got the talent. So our schools will have to somehow uh, try to use uh, various ways of exploring talent. Like we started some cybersecurity capture the flag competitions in high schools mm. just to identify those uh, kids. And uh, often in those uh, competitions, girls were ahead of everyone else. And, and we've got that population of women that we're not giving uh, attention to when it comes to tech. So I think there's a lot that can be done. And the uh, Ministry of Education, the government as a whole could identify talent and have ways of getting them from, say, wherever they are to to becoming experts. When you talk about New Zealand potentially becoming this sort of tech hub, you talked about how being trusted on the international stage is, is a big part of that, and you might almost see that as sort of being a raw resource. What do you need in terms of infrastructure around that raw resource in order to create that kind of scale industry? First of all, you need to have facilities where these uh, people can go to or can be recruited into, whether they're high school students or college students. It doesn't really matter. What is happening in the States is that the government is pouring money into cybersecurity. Now, they have uh, allowed universities, and, and by saying allowed, they give them money to create these centers of excellence for cybersecurity research, education, and outreach, as they call them. And we could do something similar. They look at the curriculum for cybersecurity, and they make sure it's relevant to the industry. So the government has created these curriculums, and I say that's that. There's uh, what's called CAE, Center of Centers of Academic Excellence in mm. Cybersecurity. And they have curriculum for universities to follow. And they try to bring the industry into the mix. That's something that the New Zealand government could do. They, they need to follow 
good examples, like the example of the U.S., in terms of cybersecurity. And one of the things that we could do a lot more of is women in technology. Back in the industry's early days, about 80% of all computer programmers were women. But then things started to change. Fast forward to today, and less than 20% of those employed in the tech industry are female. People are protesting about sexism and toxic work cultures, and there's a widely acknowledged lack of opportunities for women. We're bringing this conference together with a top woman called Marsa Markek, who is an AUT professor. She is a brilliant woman in technology. She gets all these young girls together, takes them to companies, gets the companies to support them. She created Girl Geek Coffees. She created multiple She Sharp, which uh, we started at Unitech. And, and, you know, these women should be encouraged. There are many uh, women like that, like Frances Valentine at uh, Tech Futures Lab and, and, and people like that who are top women already themselves and they could set an example. I think we need to support these women more. And, uh, you know, universities like AUT who have women in engineering, women in technology uh, facilities that try to attract more young women into that those should be really encouraged and funded. And, and then I think we, I mean, New Zealand is a great country. We're doing a lot of things, but these are things that we could do more of. Could there be a flip side in, if, if New Zealand were to establish itself as sort of the Switzerland of um, digital data and that hoarding the wealth, it invites more, you know, more people want to come and try to take it off you? Of course. So that's that's where you make your systems more secure. And, you know, that could be one of the areas of IP generation. You know, because we're hacked, we need to learn how to protect ourselves even more. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, any, like anything else, you know, you've got opportunities, but you've also got the risks. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so other people can find us too. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansel and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Professor Hossein Sarafzadeh. Ka kite anu.